All right, the kids can be dismissed to the back for an exciting service back there. They're going to learn about Jesus as well and uh, have some great things to do back there. And we appreciate the volunteers who help back there. They do a great job. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, but um, and sometimes I can stay there. Like for Easter, it worked out perfectly. But this week's message, where we would have been in Mark, doesn't apply to Mother's Day at all. And I thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll just take a break from Mark, and we're going to do an awesome story that you, many of you have probably heard before, and it's about Hannah dedicating her son Samuel. So I'm going to have you read with me this morning, if you would. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. I'll read this slide, and you read the next slide, and we'll alternate slides. Does that sound good? All right, here we go. So there was a certain man, and I'll get the hard names, okay? So it works out good. Uh, Ramathamim Sophin, name your kid that, okay? Of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. Now, whenever you see these crazy names in the Bible, you see a list of them, don't just act like that's so weird. Realize what they're doing is they're giving a family tree, and a family tree meant everything to people back then. So join me on verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah was, had children, but Hannah had no children. Verse 3 says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And that's important too, because Hophni and Phinehas were not good guys. So this is not a good season to be worshiping the Lord. It was difficult to do, but they did it anyway. So join me on the next slide here. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Join me on verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. You see the soap opera happening already, right? So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Verse 8, join me. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And together, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor so touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Read verse 13 with me. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. When Eli answered, go in peace, 
And then the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in the Lord and in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord when they went back in the, to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. And she said, I have, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. Now we're in chapter two. Uh, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth der derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no light, ro no rock like our God. Talk no more. Say very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to, the, to pieces. Against them will he thunder in the heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt his horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Now, that's a lot of scripture, right? That's probably more than we've read in a long time. We usually read, you know, 10 to 12 verses, but I wanted you to get this whole story straight from the scripture as we walk through it. And how many of you remember the show, Let's Make a Deal? You remember that one? Now, some of you remember the older one. Anybody remember the older one? What was this guy's name? Anybody remember? I don't know if I remember. But anyway, whether you like the old one or the new one, this morning we're going to play Let's Make a Deal. So uh, Samantha, come up here. I want you to draw a name. And if you draw your own name, great. More power to you, okay? Just don't peek, okay? Draw a name. Or we're going to play Let's Make a Deal. So ladies, okay, pick the one you want. There we go. What's it say? That one's blank. There's the one you dropped right there. Okay. Okay, cool. What's it say? I can't read it. What's it say? Patty, come on up here. Which, oh, Patty, Patty Gonzalez, come on up here. Patty with a Y. Great, we have two Patties now. Thank you, Samantha. Okay, so bring your gift because you're going to make a choice to trade it in because we're going to make a deal. Okay, so now, did you like the, the mom's appreciation pack? Okay, cool. Now, it, you get a choice though. You can trade up for what's in bag X over here to the right or what's in bag O. Now, you know how Let's Make a Deal works? One of them is like great, and one of them is not so much, okay? So which bag would you like to trade for? Or she can keep hers, but then that blows my whole sermon. Okay. 
X. Okay, great. Actually, you made a great choice because you have a designer set of kitchen bowls here. Okay, great. Give her, give her a hand. All right. No, I'm going to let you keep it, though. All right, go back. So, okay. Now, anybody curious what's in bag O? It would have looked really good on Patty. It's a bicycle helmet. <laughs> okay, you're glad you didn't win that one. Good choice there, Patty. Now, the reason I do that is because this story has been read that, like, Hannah is making a deal with God. God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And like, that's her way of manipulating God. And really, that's not what's happening in this story at all. As you'll see, what Hannah does is really more sacrificial than we realize. There's three things I want to show you from this message right here. There's, first of all, there's Hannah's sorrow. What was Hannah so depressed about that she could not even eat? And then secondly, there is Hannah's response. Once she gets to the end of her rope, what does she do? And then thirdly, you'll see Hannah's Savior, because it's what, what saves her out of this difficult situation. And I'm borrowing this outline from Tim Keller because he, he explains it very well. So, um, first of all, Elkanah, this guy, had two wives. And a lot of people will look at passages like this and say, see, the Bible endorses polygamy. And you Christians are not very consistent because the Bible used to say polygamy is okay, and now you guys say it's bad. And the problem with that is it never was okay. Nowhere in the Bible does it say polygamy is good. In the beginning, God created how many people? Two, one man and one woman for one lifetime. He said, here's the model, and then humans broke away from it. And every time in the scripture you see polygamy, the people are miserable. They're miserable. The Bible clearly teaches against polygamy. So in the Old Testament and the New, it's not good at any time. And so don't take this... Uh, description for a prescription. The Bible is not recommending you have two wives. In fact, that you'll see that these people are all miserable because of this polygamous relationship. So Peninnah, that's a great name, she uh, had children. She bore lots of children, and Hannah had none. Now, there's a reason that this is a big deal. It's not as big a deal today, but in biblical times, there was incredible cultural pressure to have children. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was a matter of survival in many cases. In fact, first of all, only 40% of your children made it to adulthood because of disease, famine, pestilence, and war. In biblical Old Testament times, you, if you had 10 kids, only four of them made it to adulthood. So having lots of kids was a good way of replacing them for one. But number two, it was an economic benefit. If you were a farmer, there was more hands to help on the farm. If you were a, a shoemaker, there was more ha hands to help with the making of the shoes. Whatever your family business was, your children were employees. The more employees you had, the more productivity you had, the more profit you could make, and the more chances you had of survival. It was an economic benefit. It was also something for the clan or for the village or for the tribe. It increased the tax base. The more children you had, the more taxpayers you raised up, the better the overall economy of the whole area in which you lived in. Number three, it was military security. So if, you're, if your tribe or clan is producing lots of kids, especially lots of boys, and the next one over the hillside is not, and then you get in a clash, who's going to win that war? Obviously the one with, with the more people and the better the population. Also, they didn't have social security. They didn't have 401ks. Your retirement plan was your kids. And if only 40% of them made it to adulthood, you better have lots of kids if you're going to be taken care of. 
And if you're going to live into your 60s, which would be really long at that, at that day and time, you better have your kids taking care of you, especially if you're a woman and you had, need to have people take care of you because of, of the lack of ability to work in this culture. Again, it was a cultural pressure. Um, and, but for Jewish women, it was even bigger. It was participation in God's plan. You see, they were all producing the line and the lineage of the Messiah. And so you might be giving birth to the great-great-grandfather of the Messiah. In fact, many Jewish women hope that maybe they were giving birth to the Messiah himself. So having children was a great way to populate the nation, the chosen people of God, so they could produce a Messiah. There was all kinds of reasons for this. And, and finally, the last reason was personal fulfillment. Now today, that's pretty much the primary reason. We want to have kids because it's personally fulfilling. It, it brings satisfaction to us and especially to you as women to give birth to a child and call that your own. It's a big deal. But there was a big list of reasons why and Hannah couldn't participate in any of these. In fact, she was looked upon as a failure. Look, you're not even contributing to society. Your husband could use more employees. You know, what about our nation? We need to produce men to, to fight off our enemies in battle, and you're not helping. It was a badge of dishonor to not have children. And, of course, Panenna is like, I got children, you don't, you know, and she was really mean. In fact, the Bible calls her the adversary. So she was really ruthless about this situation. So there's cultural pressures today. You can look back at them and say, oh, those ancient people, they were so stupid and so so uh, evil, you know, for putting all that cultural pressure on women. Again, some of those pressures were good and some were not so good, okay? But that was their culture then. But we act like we don't have that problem. Oh, so there's no cultural pressure today on women to be thin, right? Do you think women in the Old Testament had anorexia or eating disorders? I don't think they had that problem. But today that's like a big deal to be thin and, and to be beautiful, you know, billions of dollars in makeup and, and people putting filters on their instant Instagram and other things that make themselves look more beautiful, all kinds of pressure to look that special way. I'm glad guys don't have that pressure. We can look like dirt. It doesn't matter. Um, there's all kinds of pressure on women now to be sexually promiscuous. That was what the, the sexual revolution in the 70s was all about. It's like, if men can sleep around, why can't we women sleep around? And there was the introduction of birth control and, and abortion that made all that possible and made it just... Con where women could be as reckless as men, instead of men reeling it in and behaving themselves, women say, well, we can be wild and crazy too. And there's all kinds of pressure in our culture to do that. Um, there's, there's all kinds of pressure. You don't need a man. You can be a mom by yourself. You don't need a guy. You can just be a sperm donor. You don't need all that stuff. You just need to be an independent woman. And the truth is, instead of saying men are independent and now women are independent, why don't we just admit that we need each other? Why don't we realize that us men can't make it through life without a helper? That's why God created Eve for Adam. Why can't we realize that women, that we need a husband? And it's not a matter of weakness. It's a matter of teamwork. Because a man and a woman together have equal number of faults and weaknesses. And a man and woman together have equal number of strengths. And together we paint a beautiful picture of God. You see, God has traits that are only found in a mom. And God has traits that are only found in a dad. And that's why kids need both. Because we present the picture of the gospel. That Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And they love one another in a loving relationship. That's what marriage is about. That's what being a mom is about. That's what being a dad is about. And the truth is, we need each other.
But society puts all kinds of pressure on them. You don't need each other. You can just do whatever you want to do on your own, and it's all about the individual. That's why we're creating the most selfish generations the world has ever seen, because it's all about me. It's all about me, me and my selfies, 45 pictures of me today. You know, whatever happened to us being a community of people who love and care for one another and actually admit that we need each other. And now the pressure is the opposite. Don't have too many kids. What, you have seven kids? What, do you like live in a cult? What's wrong with you? As if there's something wrong with doing what God made you to do. How many of you have ever gotten that, that remark? Because you have a lot of kids. People make all kinds of remarks about you and things like that. And it's just like, are you kidding me? God said be fruitful and multiply and enjoy doing it. You know, he's the one who created the whole thing. And that's why God wants us to be that way. But the world is exactly the opposite. They, they want you to know one, maybe two. And you know what you see all around the world? The less Christian a culture becomes, the less kids it has. Europe is post-Christian. Christianity, in, in Europe, churches are now museums. Hardly anybody goes to church in Europe. And now in Europe, they're actually, some countries are paying women to have babies because their tax base is shrinking. And the, the economic, economic situation in Europe is dying because they don't even have enough taxpayers because everybody's having one, maybe one and a half kids. How do you have the half? I don't know, but that's the, that's the statistic. And then the big pressure on women today is your career is more important than, than your family. They're like, oh, you know, what do you do? And if, you, if you say... I'm a stay-at-home mom. It's like, wah, wah, wah. It's like, golly, you're a loser in many people's minds. And that is horrible. Man, what is, what is wrong with making a career of raising a generation of godly children who love Jesus? There's nothing wrong with that. If you can do it, more power to you. You know, if your husband makes, but what happens is in America, we tax people so heavily, it's almost incumbent upon families to have two incomes. I'm not saying you have to do that, but many people feel that's what they have to do. And many times, especially if we're, we are not willing to make compromises in our lifestyle, then there's pressure even more so to work. But your career is not important than you being a mom. And that goes for you dads as well. Whatever you are, I don't care if you're a lawyer or an accountant or an engineer, you being a dad is more important than that. And you being a mom is more important than whatever career. But the world says, no, no, no. It's like, well, what do you do for a living? Before they even ask how many kids you have, tell me about your kids. They want to know where do you work, what do you do, and they're sizing up their income versus your income, and these are all wrong priorities. So before you bash Old Testament people for their cultural pressures, I think ours are probably a whole lot worse. Now, Hannah, it says the elk, what they did was when they made sacrifices and they divided things up, he gave whatever he had, he gave double to Hannah, and the reason is because he loved her, you know. And that's another problem with a polygamous relationship. There's no way you're going to love them equally, okay? But Peninnah's like, well, at least I got kids. I got kids. I'm productive society. And, and it didn't make Hannah feel any better that she was the loved one. It didn't make Hannah feel any better that she was getting way more resources, not just food, but everything to survive. And so if anything happened to her husband, she would be better off because of all the material possessions he had. And he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. It's the Lord who did this in this situation. And it had, was he punishing Hannah? No. Okay. Infertility is not a punishment from God. Okay. Hannah had done nothing wrong. He was waiting for the right time for Hannah. And he wanted Hannah in this situation to fall in love with the Lord first so he could bless her with children later. So then it goes on to say that her rival, this is Peninnah, 
she is really a mean, grumpy lady, okay? She'd provoke her, not just a little bit, but grievously. She went on and on and on. She was like a nag's nag, and she would just irritate her. And a lot of times people do that. They think they're superior for whatever reason. In this culture, because she had lots of kids and she had none, she was jealous that her husband loved her more, so she was going to aggravate her more and more with this situation and rub it in. And so every year when they would tr get together and basically get in a family caravan and have a big family reunion, the whole way there, Panina's like, oh, where are your kids? Oh, that's right. You don't have kids. Okay. Hey, Johnny, Susie, Sally, all y'all come, all 14 of y'all come here. Say hi to Hannah. She doesn't have any kids, does she? Man, she was just ruthless about it. So Hannah, it bugged her. She, it says she wept. She didn't, didn't say she cried. She wept. She was crying uncontrollably, and she was so depressed by it, she would not eat. Many of us can relate to that, being so discouraged you don't even have an appetite. So Elkanah, her husband, says, he asks her questions. He says, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? And am I not worth more than ten sons? Okay, these are all basically rhetorical questions. He knows why she's weeping, but the first three, he tries to answer by the last one. You don't need to weep. I'm better than 10 sons. You don't need to not eat. I'm an awesome husband. Why do you need to be sad? You got me. Uh, I think the guy's a little conceited, right? When you say so. And let me tell you something, women and men, if your savior is your spouse, you're in trouble. And I have an amazing wife, Tammy. But I don't look to her for my happiness and my fulfillment. I look to who? I look to Jesus. Tammy's just bonus. She's icing on the cake. Okay? And if you will put your hope and your trust and your fulfillment and happiness in life in Jesus Christ, then your wife will shine brighter than ever. Your husband will be more of a knight in shining armor than you ever thought when you let Jesus be number one and them number two. But that's the problem. She's been making having children and pleasing her husband, her goal in life, and it's not happening. And so she's depressed to the point that she cannot eat. So these questions are what, even though I think he had a bad motive in asking the questions because he's, it's all about him. Look, you got me. What else do you need? You know, but I think, why am I weeping? Really? Is that really what life is all about? Having kids only, you know, and why, why am I sad? Why am I to the point that I don't even want to eat? And, and are you worth ten, more than 10 sons? No, you're not. You know, that wasn't the answers he's looking for, but I think this is what caused her to think when she's going through these four questions right here. So the, these were all idols that failed to provide happiness. And my question to you this morning is, what are your idols? You see, he's saying, I'll give you double of everything that I give Penina. You should be happy. Do material possessions make you happy? If you have the biggest, baddest SUV, are you going to be happy? If you graduate from a four-bedroom house to a five-bedroom house with a three-car garage and a mother-in-law quarter in the backyard, are you going to be happier now? You know, If you got more money in the bank than all your friends, is that really what's going to make you happy? Material possessions are the idol of America. It's all about Graduate from college with, with high school with good grades so you can go to a good college. Why do you want to go to a good college? So you can get a good job. Why do you want a good job? So you can make lots of money. Why do you want to make lots of money? So you can get lots of stuff. 
and it's all about keeping up with the Joneses. My BMW is better than your BMW. It's all about material possessions, and these are idols that do not bring true happiness. Having a child. Even today, some people who cannot have children feel like their life is incomplete. God did design us to have children, but just because it doesn't work for you doesn't mean that that's going to make you happy. In fact, many times, if you finally get that child, you will so want to control them and pour everything in them that they will end up making you miserable. And that can backfire and on your happiness. And then the approval of others. Penina razzed her all the time and it made her depressed. Why does she need to care what Penina thinks? What, I mean, with a woman with a name like that, why would you care what she thinks? Penina. I mean, she could have made fun of her for that, just saying, well, your name's Penina, you know? You're, and then not even Panera, you'd have your own restaurant, but you're Penina. What kind of lame name is that? Um, and then she had the loyalty of a spouse, but that didn't bring her happiness. He says, I love you. I love you more than her. You know, yeah, she has the kids, but you and I, we have the romantic weekends. It's awesome, you know, and I give you double everything. I love you. So let me ask you a question, and this is where it gets really difficult. What is your, if only I would make you happy? What is it for you? What is it right now? It's like, okay, I like where I'm at right in my life, but I'm really not there. I just, if I could have this. If I could have a better job, if I could have a bigger house, if I could have a spouse, if I could lose this spouse, whatever you're listening to, what is your if only I? And let me tell you something. If, if that, whatever that is, it's exposing your idol. It's exposing what your idol is. And you're going to find yourself in the same situation as Hannah to where you are sad and depressed and unfulfilled. So Hannah's response, she comes to the end of a rope, and it's interesting, it says, and then after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And these two words, there's tons of meaning here. This is not just, oh, she stood up. Okay, no, no, no. Of course she has to stand up. But this is like if, if somebody was in a bad situation and finally they put their foot down. What does that mean in our culture? We mean that you, you finally just said, enough is enough. You put your foot down. See, another culture would read that and say, you put your foot down. Well, of course you do. What are you going to do? You put this foot down, then you put this foot down, you put this foot down. What does that mean? So when we read here, Hannah rose, it's like finally Hannah said, enough. I'm standing up for myself. I am going to take a stand, is what this phrase means right here. Dr. Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew scholar. He's not even a Christian, but he talks about how this is a Hebrew idiom indicating that Hannah took charge of the situation. She stood up for herself once and for all, and she's going to take charge of what's going on in her life. There comes a time in your life when you need to stop being the victim, rise up in power of the Holy Spirit, and seek God's will and move on. Stop being the victim. A lot of people get identified. I remember there was one lady I was meeting, not this church, another church years and years ago, and she would talk about her ex-husband and how he ruined her life, and how painful their divorce was. And she talked about it in such a way you think the divorce had just happened in the last few months. I said, so when was your divorce final? And she goes, 11 years ago. And I'm thinking, and you're still talking about it? Man, why don't you just move on? You know, build a bridge, cry a river, get over it. Just, just move on with your life. There comes a time when you need to rise up and just say, I'm not going to put my happiness in all these boxes because they're not working. 
We need to rise up. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord. This is where she took her stand. She didn't say, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm going to turn to God. And she, she poured out her heart to God as she wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow. Now, let me talk about vows for a second, okay? In the Old Testament, vows were more important than they are today. In fact, Jesus teaches, be really careful. doesn't say never make a vow, but he says, really, the idea, the, the vows got so abused by the Pharisees, they said, you know what, just, just let your yes be yes and your nay be nay. Quit saying, I swear by the temple, I swear by God, I swear by this. Stop swearing and just say yes and mean what you say. Okay, so, but she vows this vow, and the old, I'm not saying never make a vow, you heard me there, right? Okay, but the, vow, the Old Testament does say, if you do vow a vow, make sure you keep it. So she vows this vow, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now, what, what does that have to razor touch his head? So there was a certain tribe of men called the Levites. If you were born a Levite, you automatically served in the temple and you served and you're, you were in full-time ministry is what you did. But there was another group of people called Nazarites, not Nazarenes, Nazarites, who were voluntary Levites. They say, you know what? I wasn't born a Levite, but I really would like to give my life to serving God for the rest of my life. And parents could dedicate to their children to do that. This means that, <clears throat> that her life would be totally different. She would not be getting a son to provide satisfaction and happiness. She would be getting a son in order to give it to God. Let's talk about why that is here. So one of the, one of the things of a Nazarite is they took two vows. They never cut their hair. So if you saw someone serving in the temple, but they had like, they had like Elvis, they had a nice little beautiful ponytail there, okay? It means, oh wow, he's a, he's a Nazarite. He volunteered for this position. And they also, the second thing is they never drank wine, they never drank any alcohol at all. So those two things marked the de dedication of their life. And it says, so she says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. So she's talking to Eli. Eli's like, what are you doing drunk here? And he'll get out of the temple, you drunk woman. He had never seen anybody pray that fervently before because the, the worship of God was dead because of his two sons being wicked and doing inappropriate things with women. Nobody really poured their heart out to God. So when somebody's actually crying and weeping in the temple praying, he thinks, oh, she must be drunk. But she's speaking out of the anxiety and vexation of her heart. You see, let me, let me ask you a question. What do you do with your anxiety? <clears throat> what right now is stressing you out? We've all got our list, right? What, what would be like number one on the list right now? Okay, you got it in your head. Now let me ask you, what do you do with that? You see, liberal psychology would say, you need to just talk about it. Just talk about it. Just tell us all about it. And, a, and you sit on a couch and a therapist goes, well, how did that make you feel? Well, how did that make you feel? Okay, that'll be $175. Thank you. And, you know, and they just want you to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about it. And they say, if you talk about it, it'll make you feel better. That's not always true. There's some things that stay alive in your life because all you do is keep talking about it and talking about it. Maybe it's just time to just shut up and let it be in the past. I'm not saying it's never time, but liberal psychology says, talk about it, talk about it. The more you talk about it, the better you feel. And that's not always the case. But then there's, <clears throat> and Proverbs 29 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. If you find yourself saying, well, uh, that's just the kind of person I am. If I think it, I'm going to say it. Fool. <laughs> not my words. That's what the Bible says. There's times that just 
be quiet about it. You don't have to say everything that's on your mind. You don't have to tell every joke that pops in your head. You don't have to offer every criticism. That The other day, I got to the, went to the rec center uh, to get my swole on. And uh, there's, they, they don't open until 8 o'clock on Saturdays, and I forgot about that. So I got there a little bit early, and there was uh, a guy standing by the door and a lady standing by, the, by this door, and I'm standing right here, and we're all just waiting for 8 o'clock for them to unlock the doors. And some young guy, maybe 19, walks up, goes right up to the door and goes, and he's just trying all the doors, and they're like, I'm thinking, we're, we're all standing here, it's kind of obvious. But the other guy at the other door says, they don't open until 8. We're not standing here for our health. I'm like, man, that was rude, you know. I thought it, but he said it, you know. <laughs> you don't have to say everything that comes to your mind, but the Bible says a fool does that. Now, liberals say, talk about it. Conservative religious people say, suppress your feelings. You're a big boy, don't cry. Boys don't cry. You know, don't talk about your feelings. You're depressed, rebuke it in the name of Jesus. Don't talk about it. Just suppress it. Quote more Bible verses. Read your Bible. Don't be depressed. You know, just suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. And neither one of these extremes are healthy, okay? There, there is a balance in this situation. See, biblical Christianity says you pour your heart out, but pour it out to God. Don't suppress it and act like it's not there. Just deny it, you know? And don't just blab it to everybody and bring them down. You need to pour your heart out, but pour your heart out to God. And let me just tell you, by the way, he's the best listener he is, there is. He's the one that listens the very best. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting how much of your anxiety? All your anxieties on him. And here's why. Because he cares for you. Do you know the number one reason we do not give our anxieties to Jesus? It's because we really don't believe he cares for us. If we really realize how much he cares for us, we would pour our hearts out to him more often. Let me ask you something. Has anybody else died on the cross for you? Is there anybody who cares for you more than that? We need to give whatever it was number one in your list a moment ago, that's what you need to give to Jesus. Not only number one, number two, all the way down to number 27. Give them all to him. Then Eli answered and said, well, hey, go in peace. And Eli's a prophet. Even though he's not a very good prophet, he's still a prophet. So God tells him to tell her the God of Israel granted your position, position that you have made to him. So he's like, good news, God has answered your prayers. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. She went her way. She went on with life, is what this phrase is trying to imply. And she ate. Before, was she eating? No. So it, that's not just a small detail. It's saying she no longer was depressed, and her face was no longer sad. The depression that was in her heart, that was taking away her appetite, was now gone. She was ready to eat. It was no longer showing on her face. She was no longer depressed about that. She does not yet, but here's the thing. She doesn't yet have what she asked for. And yet she's no longer depressed. You see what's happening here? She's good with the situation. Whether God gives her a son or not, if he gives her a son, I'll give him back to you because I don't have to have a son to be happy. If you don't give me a son, I'm going to be happy. The depression ended before the pregnancy started. The, preg the, the depression ended before the childbirth happened. You see, this is an interesting situation she's in. You see, our pattern for peace goes this way. I seek and ask God for what I want. Then I get what I want. Then I have peace. That's the way we want it to be. 
When God gives us the better job, then we'll be happy. And God says, no, no, no. Here's my way of doing things, and it's a whole lot better. You see, ask God for what you want, then trust him for whatever the answer is, and you'll have peace. You see, prayer is not so much changing the heart of God as it's changing the heart of me. And when I get my own heart changed to where I can say it's well with my soul, I'm happy with the way life is going, and if God answers it, great. If God doesn't answer it, fine. I am now, my happiness is in Jesus Christ, and not in a promotion, not in a bigger house, not in if all my friends like me, or whatever it may be, my happiness is in the Lord. So Hannah's response, again, before she gets her prayer answered, she worships the Lord. Man, I... I wish I had a dollar for every time someone told me, yeah, I didn't really have a good weekend. I was feeling down and depressed. That's why I didn't come to church. That's like saying my, arm, my right hand was cut off. I'm bleeding to death. That's why I didn't go to the emergency room. You know what? This is a church where no perfect people are allowed. If you got it all together, great. Go to some other church. This is for church for broken people. This is a church for people who have serious problems. Because when we come into the house of the Lord, we find strength. When we come into the house of the Lord, we find hope. When we come into the house of the Lord, we find other people who are struggling with the same things we are, and we struggle together, and we pull each other through. That's, that's what church should be. And so she worshiped the Lord, even though she didn't have what she wanted. And then, in due time, that's the thing. Not in her time, not in my time, not in your time, but in God's right timing, Hannah conceived and bore a son. We don't know when this happened, whether this is days later, weeks later, or months later. But we know it was the right time. And she called his name Samuel. Hey, Samuel, we're talking about you this morning, right? She, what a great name. She named her name Samuel. And here's why. For, in other words, what Samuel means is, I have asked or I've heard from the Lord. I asked, God answered. That's what Samuel literally means. God answered. I heard from God. The L is the, the word for God, Samu. In fact, if you're following the chosen, who is this? Shmuel. That's the Hebrew way of saying Samuel. Samuel Shmuel. Okay? He's one of the bad guys in The Chosen. Okay? But that's, who, that's what he's named right there. And so Hannah was not playing the game, let's make a deal. You did a good job, Patty, but that's not what Hannah was doing. Okay? She wasn't saying, God, if you do this, I'll do that. She's like, God, do whatever you want to do, and I'm cool with it. And my happiness is no longer in whether Penina likes me or not. My happiness isn't because I get a double portion from my husband and he loves me more than her. My happiness is not in whether I have a son or not or whether all the ladies of the town think I'm a good citizen or not. My happiness is in Jesus. And that's, that's where we all need to learn from Hannah, whether you're a guy or a girl, a father or a mother. So how, now here's the thing. If God gives her Samuel, how does that even benefit her? Is he now an economic benefit to her family? Nope. He doesn't work for the family at all. He goes away to the temple as soon as he's old enough. Um, it, does he help increase the tax base? Nope. In fact, he's now living off the nation because he's ministering the temple. He's not paying taxes at all. In fact, the tax money, the temple tax, is used to support him. Is, but he can help fight for the country, No, right? Nope. Levites and Nazarites didn't fight for the country, didn't help at all. Um, would he be a security for an old age? Maybe take care of him, her? No, he'd be living in the temple no matter what. Um, how about personal fulfillment? What good is a son that you only see once a year? That's all she got to see him because he was a, a Nazarite. Once a year she could see him. But 
Could she still participate in God's plan? Yes. Because guess who was in the lineage of Jesus? Right, Samuel. Guess who was the prophet of God? Who, guess who anointed King David? Okay, Samuel went on to be a great man of God. And, and so we see now, now, we saw Hannah's sorrow. She was looking for fulfillment and other things that could not make her happy. But then we saw that Hannah's response was she stood up. She rose up. She said, enough is enough. And then we saw that what, she, what got her through was Hannah's Savior. Hannah's Savior. Our last point here. She said, she prayed. She said, my heart exalts the Lord. I will rejoice in your salvation. Before she was saying, I, I want to rejoice in my husband loves me. I want to rejoice in that I got children. I want to rejoice in that Panana leaves me alone or all the other women like me. She's like, I'm done with all that. I'm going to rejoice in God's salvation. That's the right response that Hannah made. So Hannah's Savior was not her possessions, not even a double portion. It was not in having a child. It was not in the approval of others. I could park there for a while, couldn't I? Man, social media is killing us. It's killing us. We, we have friends and no friends. We get depressed if our Instagram is not killing it. We are obsessed with these things. And these phones are designed to give you instant gratification. And we are more concern, concerned about people who are not in the room than people who are in the room. And like I said, I can get on a hobby horse right there. You, you, the only approval you need is from God. You need to worry about what he thinks of you and that, that he's happy with the way you're living. And it wasn't her, her salvation was not in, her, in the loyalty of her spouse. Okay? Luke 10, 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. So the, he sent the disciples out two by two. Remember that? The 70 went out in 35 pairs. And they were performing all kinds of miracles. They're casting out demons and healing the blind and the sick and all kinds of things. And they come back and, man, they're stoked. They're just like, man, this was awesome, Jesus. You should have done this sooner. This was, this was the most amazing six months of our life we have ever done. And Jesus says, hey, calm down, guys. I'm glad you did all those things, but don't rejoice in the fact that demons listen to you. Here's what I want you to be most excited about, that your names are written in heaven. I think, okay, that's kind of lame. Cast out demon, I'm going to heaven. That's because we really don't know what heaven's about. And it's not the fact that you're just going to heaven. It's the fact that your name is written in heaven. What is your name written as? Child of God. That you are a child of the king. And therefore, nothing can harm you. Nothing can come against you. That nothing that God would allow for your, his good, for your good and his glory. That's what we should be excited about. It's not who we are. It's about who we are, not necessarily what we do. Not saying all these doing these things are not great, okay? But who you are. Are you good with who you are? Or as they often say, are you comfortable in your own skin? If you realize your skin is who God created you to be, and you're living for Christ, you should be extremely comfortable in that situation. Now back to our passage, he said, uh, Hannah is singing a psalm here, and it's recorded in Scripture. She's praising God, and she's doing her own psalm, and it says, there's, there's none holy like the Lord. And he is so above and beyond and afar out amazing above anybody or anything this world offers. And he says, for there is none beside you, there is no one that would rock like our God, a rock, something you can stand upon that you can count on that will be there to support you. 
Is that what your, is your rock built upon God and through Jesus Christ? And he goes on and draws these contrasts. Powerful people are broken, but weak people, they're strong. Watch the contrast here with me. Then she goes on to say, those who are full got plenty of food, right? They're now selling their bodies to get a loaf of bread. But those who are hungry are no longer hungry. The barren now has seven kids, and the woman who had many kids is totally depressed about it. Watch the contrast here. She goes on to say, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, which is the grave in hell, and, she, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So God has ups and downs for different people at different times, different stages of life. We need acceptance from God. And so he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. You're not going to get through life, through depression, through discouragement, just because you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You have to look to God as your Savior. See, God has always favored the underdog. Think about this. Who did God like better, Abel or Cain? He favored Abel over Cain, the under, second born, right? He, he favored Jacob over Esau. He favored Leah, the not-so-pretty one, over Rachel, the pretty one. He, pre he preferred Joseph, the youngest uh, of all the older brothers. He chose fishermen to be his disciples over religious Pharisees. He chooses the poor over the rich. He chooses the humble over the proud. That's what Hannah is singing about, okay? And he says that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Now, wait a minute. There's not a king yet. So what king is Hannah singing about? She's singing about King Jesus. She's singing about King Jesus. He says God will give strength to his king Jesus and exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, talking about Jesus Christ. See, this is an amazing story. Hannah loved God so much that she gave him her only son because she believed in him that the Messiah would come into the world. Does this look familiar? Does it look sound familiar? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hannah wasn't playing, let's make a deal. Hannah was portraying the gospel. You give what you love the most away to the world and God will bless you for it. That's what Hannah was about. And that's what Jesus Christ came into the world to do, is to die for our sins. And you may be thinking, Gary, you know, I, yeah, I sin every now and then, but I'm basically a good person. Um, according to the Bible, we're not. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, there's none righteous, not even one. Not even one of us. Not one of us, our good outweighs our bad. See, most religions have the scale mentality that when you stand before God in judgment, he's going to put all your bad rocks over here and he's going to put all your good gold nuggets over here and hopefully your gold will outweigh your, your bad. And okay, well, you're good enough. Scale's tipped in your favor. Come on in. If, if that was the case, you know what it'd be for Gary? Boom. <laughs> Ton of bad over here. Even some of my good, they need to be over here because I did them for the wrong reasons. Like when I donated that money, it just, just made me feel better. And when I served over there at the homeless shelter, it was to make me look good. And when I gave all this away at Christmas time, it was just so people think I'm a generous person. You see, 
We, we do all kinds of things for wrong reasons. I'm not even sure we do anything for right reason, but that's, that's debatable. But every single one of us, our scale tips in the favor of sin. So we need a Savior. So Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, the scale tips in his favor all the time, he traded and gave us all his righteousness, lived the life that we could not live, and then died the death that we deserved. And he took our place. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just to pray with me for just a moment. And if you know Christ as your Savior, would you thank him right now? Thank him for loving you and sending Christ to die for you. If, if you don't know, if you're not sure, today could be your day. All I'm asking you to do is simply, by faith, trust him to save you. To admit you're a sinner, which is hard for us to do, but it's true. We are, we are helpless as Hannah to have a child. We are helpless to save ourselves without Christ. Would you trust him? You say, Lord Jesus, I, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you buried all those sins in the grave. And I believe that on the third day you rose again victorious with eternal life for everyone who trusts in you. So Lord, I do. I trust you to forgive all my sins. I give you my life because you gave your life for me. And I ask you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you made that decision, I'd love to talk to you. I want to talk to you about what your next step as a new believer is. Uh, we're actually going to be having a baptism at the end of this month. So if, you're, if you've been saved and never been scripturally baptized, let's talk and let's get that scheduled. All right. Uh, Tori, would you like to come help me with um, question and answer session? If you have a question, you can text that in right now. If it hasn't come through for some reason, you can get, sometimes some phones get bad reception here. You could just raise your hand and ask it. If you're watching online, Feel free to text it in this number right here, and we'll be glad to answer those questions for you. Anything at all about um, the Bible, about what I just taught, or just something from a Christian perspective? Um, let's see if there's one. You know, I'll start with that one here. Yeah. What temple did Hannah go to since Solomon had not built it yet? Sure. Um, so this would be either the tabernacle, which was sometimes called the temple, or otherwise I don't know. That's a great question. Um, so I think it was probably the temporary tabernacle, but it was in a fixed place because they did have a capital. I just don't think it was the elaborate temple of Solomon. But I, that's a good question. I probably need to do a little more research on that one to give, a better, give you a better answer. Patrick always stumps me. Good job, Patrick. Could it be interpreted in 1 Samuel 1.5 when Elkanah gave sacrifices during the festival and gave Hannah a double portion to compensate for the lack of children. Um, could be, but it says because he loved her. It gives us the reason he, he gave her a double portion. It says, it says because he loved her. He, just like Rachel was the favorite over Leah, and, and any time in a polygamous relationship, it's impossible for humans not to pick favorites. Um, but uh, except with your kids, they're all the same, right? Okay, maybe. Um, anyway, so, but it, it, it could be also because of guilt. It could be because of lack of children, on and on. But the primary reason is what we find in the scriptures is, is because he loved her. All right. The host was Monty Hall. Monty Hall. That's right. Good for whoever answered that one. Who? Oh, get Rob. Rob's Mr. Trivia. All right, cool. Any other questions? Uh, nope. No? Any other? Oh. All right. Yes. All right, let's go with that one then, Patrick. What about situations where women have no choice but to be independent? 
oh, if you have no choice, then you know what? It's like in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, it says God is a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widows. So God becomes your husband. He fills in. And again, more power to you if you're a single mom. Good job. Keep it going. And that you, you are proof that God helps in situations. Okay, so if you have no choice, yes. No, we're not condemning anybody who like, has been abandoned or for whatever circumstances. We're not judging or condemning on that. Uh, we need, we want to choose God's model, and that's a man and a woman together to raise children. Um, but again, life is broken and we're all messed up. I've been divorced, okay? So I'm not trying to knock anybody who's been through that. All right, Patrick. Right? Right. 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 Great question. Um, so Tabitha is the one that answers the door. Okay. And they're meeting in Mary's house, not Mary, mother of Jesus, but the other Mary who was wealthy, Mary, Mark's mom. And so she had a big enough house to where they could have worship in it. And so they're having a prayer meeting. And what are they praying for? To get Peter out of jail. And then when he comes and knocks on the door, Tabitha, which in, in the Greek means blonde, she goes and tells everybody, just she goes and tells everybody, hey, guess what? Peter's at the door. In other words, our prayers have been answered. They're like, no, no, we're praying for Peter right now. They didn't even believe that their prayers have been answered. And then someone, not Tabitha, says, it may be his angel, okay? So that goes from superstition amongst people, not the Sadducees because they didn't believe in angels. The Pharisees had some superstitions about you being an angel or your angel walking around representing you, and that was wrong. So that was a, a wrong belief that they had at that time because their theology wasn't right. So that's why Jesus had to say, hey, flesh and blood does not eat food. Touch me. I'm not an angel. I'm not a See, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus did not bodily resurrect, but that he is the angel, the archangel Michael. And that he, yeah, so that's just whack theology there. Um, cool thing about Peter, and um, let me see if there's any other questions. So Peter, when he's in jail, he's chained, and he's between, he's, how many guards? He's between two guards, and he's stretched out like this with evil people on either side. What's that a picture of? Jesus, right? And then the angel comes to wake him up, and what does the angel do? He kicks him where? In his side. I mean, it's like painting the gospel all over again with Peter. Peter's living like Christ, persecuted. He said, you'll suffer for me. He said, you know, the baptism I'm baptized with, you guys will be baptized with. And so here's Peter being suffering for Jesus with a criminal, you know, people treating him criminally on either side as he's chained and the angel kicks him to the side, and then the door is opened, and he walks out. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture there. Let me just check and see if there's not one more question before I move on here. Okay, there's not. All right. Um, oh, Manuel. Are we doing a walk away? No. Okay, pray. All right.
Yeah, very cool, very cool. You know, it's, it, how many times have we heard stories of people wanting to adopt, wanting to adopt, wanting to adopt, or wanting to have kids, have kids, have kids, and they can't. And as soon as they adopt, they conceive. You know, and it's just God has a sense of humor with those. But I think one of the things he's trying to show is just trust me. Trust me that in due time, I'll do what I want to do, whether you have kids or not, now or later. Just trust me with the timing of all that. And, and it's interesting how things can happen there. All right, let's stand and let's give uh, thanks to the Lord for today. And again, good to have guests in the house. Let's give them a hand. All right. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the story of Hannah and how she came to the end of a rope and she found you there. Lord, we're each dealing with some things that stress us out. I pray that we would look past them and see the one who's in control, the one who, who brings about all circumstances for our good and your glory. So Father, help us to trust you more and to most of all be like Christ, to, to be willing to lay down our lives for others. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you.